0: All right, for those of you that were not here last night, I began a series, and last night I'm teaching a series that I'm calling the war is over. That God isn't mad anymore, that sin has been atoned for, and that God is not imputing men's sins unto him. And so last night we took the scripture out of Luke chapter two, verses eleven through fourteen, where the angels sang and they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, good will towards men. And this wasn't talking about peace among men, but it was talking about peace from God towards men. And some people didn't understand. They, don't, they haven't processed all of these things. But under the old covenant, there was a wrath and a punishment of God towards men that was severe. And some people don't make a distinction between the way that God operated under the Old Covenant and the way that He operates under the New Covenant. They just kind of run it all together and think that God is still dealing with mankind the same. And that is not so. If you don't understand this, if you expect God to send the death angel and kill people, and if you believe that God is one that's striking people with sickness and disease and doing these things... That's going to affect your relationship with God. We've got a better covenant and things are totally different in the new covenant. And many people haven't seen that. But the angels were praising God that this war was over. And so we talked about that last night. I took scriptures out of Isaiah and other places and talked about how that God put our punishment upon Jesus and Jesus suffered for our sins. He totally paid the price. And the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 53 that when he saw the travail of Jesus' soul, that he was satisfied with the suffering that Jesus had. You do not have to suffer. You do not have to suffer separation from God. He'll never be angry with you or rebuke you again. Boy, those are tremendous truths. And I tell you, this is just so radically different than the message that the typical church is given today. And because of this, a lot of people do not understand how much God loves them. Their faith is hindered because of that. They're having trouble receiving. You know, really, most people don't doubt God's ability. What they doubt is God's willingness to use His ability... Because they don't feel worthy. And the truth is you aren't worthy in yourself if you just look at your actions. But God doesn't just look at your actions. God has placed your punishment for your sin upon Jesus. And now He's not only taken your sin away, but He's given you the righteousness of Jesus. You are as righteous, as holy, as pure as Jesus is in your born-again spirit. And John 4.24 says God is a spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God looks at you in the spirit realm. And He doesn't see you the way you see yourself. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 says, Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God isn't looking at your actions, your sins, your failures. God isn't angry at you the way you're angry at yourself. God isn't disappointed with you the way that you're disappointed with yourself. God sees you in the Spirit, and in the Spirit you are a brand new creation. And God is just in in love with you. God wants to move in your life, but it takes your cooperation. You don't have to live holy and earn it, but you do have to trust, believe God. And most of us cannot trust that God really uh, is going to move in our life because we know we don't deserve it. And that's because we've been under a ministry that has been preaching sin consciousness to us, telling us that if you have sin in your life, God won't answer your prayer, do all of these kind of things. Last night I was trying to share that the war is over. God is not imputing our sins unto us. God's not angry at you. God loves you. And if you could just receive that good news, your faith would go through the roof. You would begin to start receiving and the supernatural power of God would operate in your life much, much greater. So um, let's look at a passage of Scripture over in John chapter 12. And I'll go back and summarize kind of what I said last night. And then we will uh, continue on from this. But in John chapter 12, this is as Jesus was getting ready to lay His life down for us. He was headed to Jerusalem. And in John chapter 12, verse 28... Jesus said, Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spoke to him. You know, this is interesting to me. This is really not my main point, but I just can't help but mention this. That here's people that heard an audible voice from God out of heaven say, this is my beloved son. I have glorified your name and I will glorify it again. And some people could not believe that that was really God speaking. You know, people pray that, oh, God, give me a sign and do all of this. But you know what? If your heart is evil, if your heart is hardened towards God, if you heard an audible voice from God out of heaven, you would you'd explain it away and think, well, it was thunder. It was something else. These people aren't any different than people today. I tell you what, people, you have to get to where you hear God in your heart. God is not going to speak in a booming voice out of heaven very often. And even if He did, if your heart is wrong, you would misinterpret it. You wouldn't believe it. These people just refused to believe. And here was an audible voice from God out of heaven. And some people said, oh, it was just thunder. And Jesus said in verse 30, He said, This voice came not because of me but for your sakes. In other words, Jesus didn't need to hear God say this. Jesus was listening to God. He was in communion with God. This came for the unbeliever's sake and yet a majority or a large portion of those unbelievers couldn't even receive it. But he said, this didn't come because of me but for your sakes. Now as the judgment of this world, now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now Jesus here said in verse 32, If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Often this is interpreted as being that if we just preach Jesus and talk about Jesus properly, God will draw the crowds and that you'll just instantly have a large church or that people will come and that everybody's going to come. Did you know that that's not what this is saying? That is not this message. Number one, you can't observe that. And I'm not meaning to be critical here, but you know, I travel around, I go to a lot of different churches, and some of the largest churches I go to are some of the worst churches. Amen or oh me. You know, they have these seeker-friendly churches. They compromise. They get down to where they have a little 20-minute message and things like this, and you know what? Those are the churches that are really growing. Those are the kind of churches today that are really prospering. The ones that are not really proclaiming the word, but it's built around entertainment. They're making it so simple and so easy that all a person has to do to get their conscience salved and feel like that they're fulfilling the requirements of the scriptures about churches. They go to church for an hour a week and that's it. And there's no committal. There's there's nothing asked of them. You know, I go to a church of about 10, 12,000 people or something like that. And I told the pastor, I said, if you turn this church over to me, I could whittle it down to 1,000 in 30 days. And I said, if you'd give it to me for two months, I could have it down to 500. Because I can guarantee you a large portion of those people aren't even baptized in the Holy Ghost. Things like that. It is not true that the churches that are preaching the best message and lifting up Jesus are having the most people come to it. That is not what you observe in the body of Christ. It isn't true that if you'll just preach the right message, God will draw all men to it. You know, when I first... The reason I got started on radio is because I went to Childers, Texas, and I held a meeting there, and I was under this impression that if I just minister the Word of God, He'll draw all men unto me. And I ministered there. We started with six people, and I think in three days or four days, we wound up with about 20-something, and, uh, you know, and so I was going to go somewhere else. And before I left, the Lord woke me up, in it's a long story, but the Lord told me, he says, look, he says, you're assuming that if you were just doing what was right, and if you were trusting me, that I would speak to people and bring them to your meeting. He said, if the people were spiritual enough that they could hear me talk to them and say, go hear Andrew Womack, I wouldn't need you to minister to them." <laughs> He says you have to come across their path in some carnal way. They aren't listening to the Spirit. They're carnal and He says you've got to come across their path and I woke up early in the morning, prayed about it and I went down and started on radio the next morning and that's how I started my radio ministry. God said you've got to come across their path. So we've been on radio and television. Did you know most of you in here wouldn't have listened to God that if we hadn't have advertised on radio and television and sent out cards, most of you wouldn't have been sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to know that we We were going to be ministering here three days and you would have just shown up by the spirit we had to reach you in some carnal way now you can do that there are examples i've heard many examples of people in countries where they're persecuted and they just pray and god leads them where to go did you know you have the capability of hearing the holy spirit that strong but most of us aren't flowing that way and so we have to come across your path in physical natural ways This is not saying that if you just preach Jesus, if you just get up, that He'll draw all the crowd in. That's not what this is talking about. If you'll look at this verse, the word men is italicized, which means it wasn't in the original language. And so they add words many times because it's grammatically correct. You know, the Greek and the Hebrew are different than English, and sometimes they don't have adjectives. They don't have the same verbs and stuff like this. So they will put in these words in italics, to help uh, make it grammatically correct in English. But they, they had enough integrity to say that when a word is out, italicized, it means that it wasn't in the original language. It's an interpretation or an addition by the translators. So what this is really saying, Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all unto me. He didn't specify what all. But if you look at it in context, you know what I believe that this is talking about. The previous verse says, "Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all judgment unto me." That was the that was the topic, the subject in the previous verse. What Jesus is saying, and if you go on and read it, The next verse, it says, this said he signifying what death he should die. This wasn't talking about that if you just preach the right message, God will draw all of the people to hear it. This was talking about, he was speaking about his death is what the scripture goes on to explain. So Jesus here was saying, when I be lifted up, I'm going to draw all of God's judgment unto him. All of God's judgment for the entire human race would be placed upon Jesus and God punished Jesus. He judged Jesus and if He was to judge you and me, then it would be double jeopardy. It would be in a sense undoing and discounting what His Son has done. God has already judged your sin in the flesh of His Son, the Lord Jesus. It says that over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. It says, for what the flesh could not do, and for what uh, let's see, how's that go? I'm going to have to go back to verse one, get this in context. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the flesh could not do for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned. And that word condemned means judged, sin in the flesh, in the flesh of Jesus, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. At Romans 8 3 says that God judge sin in the flesh of His own Son. God put your sin on His Son and judged His Son. And it would be double jeopardy. In our court system, if you judge a person and sent them to prison and they had already suffered and paid their sentence, you can't retrial them. Retry them for that. They've already paid the debt. You can't put a person back in and punish them again for something that they've already suffered for. Well, Jesus suffered for my sin. Jesus suffered separation from the, from the Heavenly Father and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I am never going to be forsaken by God because Jesus was forsaken for me. I will never be for, uh, separated from God because Jesus was separated for me. I am never going to be punished by God for my sin because Jesus was punished by God for me. Man, that is so simple. And yet the church, by and large, and again, I'm saying church in a general sense, there are good churches and there are people preaching the truth, but I'm saying a large portion, the dominant portion of the body of Christ today is imputing man's sins unto them and saying, Well, you did this. God would never heal you because you did this. Until you repent of this sin, God can't move in your life. They're making you accountable for your own individual sin. You are having to suffer for your own individual sin. Now I know some of you are thinking, so you're saying there's no consequences to my sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. There's plenty of consequences. If you go live in sin, you're just stupid. You are absolutely stupid. Because God's not the only person we're dealing with. I'm saying that God's judgment upon your sin is over. God has placed your judgment against your sin upon Jesus and God is never going to reject you, punish you, be angry at you. He will never rebuke you. God's Punishment upon sin is over, but sin is also an inroad of the devil into your life. I call it a vertical and a horizontal effect to sin, the vertical effect where God's judgment was going to come upon you because of your sin has been taken care of. Jesus suffered for your sins. But every time you sin, Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield yourself to sin, you are yielding yourself to the author of that sin, Satan. And Satan is going to come in and eat your lunch and pop the bag. Amen. I guarantee you, you don't want to go live in sin. If you do live in sin, you're absolutely stupid because it's given Satan an inroad into your life to cause havoc. But God loves you, stupid. That's the point I'm trying to get across. You may be stupid, but God loves you. God's not mad at you. God's not the one that's punishing you. So does that mean you can just go live in sin? Well, it means you could live in sin and God loves you because he's already placed your sin upon Jesus. But it's just stupid to give Satan an inroad into your life. Why would you want to go live in sin? Anybody who would take what I'm saying to say, well, man, I can go commit adultery because God loves me and my sin's paid for. You're playing Russian roulette having sexual immorality with all of the sexually transmitted diseases and AIDS and things like that. You are condemning your own self. Your conscience is going to be defiled. You're going to lose your confidence. Your own heart is going to be convicting you. You're going to hurt the person that you're married to. You're going to hurt the person that you commit adultery with you're going to hurt a lot of people you're going to hurt the kingdom of God you're going to shame yourself you, it's just stupid. how dumb can you get and still breathe but God loves you stupid I mean I'm not advocating living in sin but I'm saying your sin has been paid for God drew Jesus drew all judgment unto himself and he shuff suffered your shame and your rejection and your iniquity. He felt whatever you you could imagine a person feeling. If they commit murder, if they lie, if they steal, if they hurt other people. Jesus suffered that shame. He suffered the embarrassment. He suffered the rejection. Jesus suffered separation from God. He's already done it for us. And for you to bear it is totally unnecessary. For you to feel that you have to do penance and somehow or another add to what Jesus has done... ...is a disgrace. It's dishonoring Jesus. It's arrogance on our part to think that what Jesus did wasn't enough... ...and that we have to add something to it to make it complete. There is nothing that you can do. It says over in Titus chapter 2 that we are saved not by any worth or value... ...merits of our own, but it was by the mercy of God that we've been saved... We have nothing to claim. There is nothing that you can do to add to Jesus. And basically the way that the quote-unquote gospel has been presented today is that Jesus paid a price, but it's not a full price. And until you do these things, until you repent, until you don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, until you live up to some standard God can't move in your life, and we are adding to what jesus has done we have to add to it our own goodness and our own works and our own holiness that's the message that the church is preaching today don't look at me in this tone of voice (laughs) you all act like who would preach that i guarantee you, every last one of us has been exposed to this and have thought that we have to do things to earn the favor of god i'm telling you you are accepted by god because of what jesus did plus zero all you have to do is receive it by faith And if you are thinking that, well, I know that Jesus died for me and he did these things, but I also have to be holy, that is undoing what Jesus has done. It says over in Romans chapter 11, verse 6, that you're either saved by grace without works, otherwise grace is no more grace, or you're saved by works without grace, otherwise works is no more works. That's just old English for saying you're either saved by grace or by works, but not by a combination of the two. You are either saved by the grace of God and all you've got to do is receive it by faith or you have to be saved by your own goodness and your own merit. It is not a combination of the two. It's not Jesus providing the minimum payment and then you add to it. Jesus paid it all and it's just a matter of you believing and receiving or doubting and doing without. That's the way it works. And yet most of us, most of us have fallen under this works mentality and Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan can't accuse God. You know, Satan isn't even trying to tell most of you that God can't do miracles. God can't set you free. God can't heal you. God can't bless you. That's not what he's doing because if you believe in God, by definition, if he's God, that means he can do anything. You aren't doubting that God has the power, that God can do it. Where Satan is, is fighting you, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's coming and he's saying, sure, God can do things, but what makes, he, what makes you think he would do it for you, you sorry thing? And he'll show you that you got mad at somebody, you haven't studied the Word, you haven't prayed, and that's where you're missing it because you tie God's movement in your life to your performance. Hey Amen or oh me. Man, it's a quiet group here. I guess you're chewing on this. Look over in uh, Romans chapter 1. Let me just, I'm going to go through a few scriptures in the book of Romans. Like I said this morning, I've got that whole series on Romans, a summary of the first eight chapters. I think there's four tapes in that, and then I've got that entire book. I encourage you to get this. But let me just go through and show you some of the highlights of the book of Romans Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. You know, the word gospel today is a religious cliche to us. Most people don't know what it's talking about. We use the word gospel to refer to anything to do with Christianity, the church. And we say, man, I'm a minister of the gospel. And some of those people that say they're a minister of the gospel don't ever have anything that's good news. That's what the word gospel means, is good news. Man, they're up there saying, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. Repent or else turn or burn. And they say, I'm preaching the gospel. That's not the gospel. Now, it is true that there is a God and a devil, a heaven and a hell, and if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell. Those things are true, but that's not good news. That's not the gospel. You know, actually, if you were to study this word out, I read uh, one of these commentaries on this. And they said that in all Greek literature outside of the Bible, there are only two examples of this word for gospel being used outside of the Bible. And the reason is because they defined it as nearly too good to be true news. It wasn't just saying it was good news. It was a superlative for over the top. This is such good news. There is nearly, it's nearly too good to be true news. And did you know outside of the gospel, there isn't anything that is nearly too good to be true news. I mean, they didn't use this much. It was a word that existed outside of the Bible before the Bible was written, but it was very seldom used because there was not much in life that's nearly too good to be true news. You know, if you were to extract God and the good things that He's done through Jesus, you know, life is, is bad. Life is a terminal experience. We're all in varying stages of dying. And if you just were to not think about heaven and the promises of God and the goodness of God and just look at things in a critical way, man, there's a lot of reasons to be upset. (laughs) I mean, if you aren't having a problem right now, just hold on. You will have one soon. It will happen. You know, life is bad. And so they didn't use this word very much. But when Jesus came along, what He did for us, drawing all of the judgment of God unto Himself, taking our sins upon Himself. You know, when Charlie and Jill were singing this song this morning, I was, I was standing down there just thinking about, man, this is amazing love that God Almighty would die for us. You know, in Isaiah chapter 40, it says He measures, the, He spans the heaven or I forget the exact wording, but the whole heavens, the universe, He can contain in the span of His hand. Think how big that is. The universe. God's hand is bigger than the universe. And yet, God Almighty came and lived inside a physical human being, Jesus, and now... Jesus lives inside of us. He bore our sins and died for us. That's nearly too good to be true news. You know, that's not even close to the comparison of... If you saw an ant or a bug or a flea, that you would die for that ant? It's so insignificant. And yet God is infinitely greater than that. And yet He loved us enough that He died for us. That's nearly too good to be true news that He bore our sins. And so when Paul used this word, it wasn't a religious cliche. Nobody just passed over this. Paul was saying, I'm not ashamed of telling people that God has paid for their sins, that everything has already been done, that God isn't angry at them anymore. I'm not ashamed of this nearly too good to be true news. And the religious system of Paul's day just screamed and yelled at this because they were preaching a bad news gospel. It wasn't even gospel. It was just bad news that God is angry and you had to appease him by doing all of these rituals and you couldn't, you had to measure how many steps you took on a Sabbath because if you took too many steps, God would be angry at you. Did you know that John the Baptist was raised by the essence? The people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls and they lived around the Dead Sea and they've actually in those Dead Sea Scrolls, they've discovered documents. This was such a legalistic Ritualistic group that it was against the law. They interpreted it as keeping the Sabbath that you couldn't have a bowel movement on the Sabbath day. They would not allow you to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath day because that could be considered work. Did you know that that's the system that Jesus came into? And that's the system that Paul was talking to? People who were so ritualistic, so legalistic, that if you didn't do all of these things, God would reject you and be angry at you. And Paul just boldly proclaimed, I'm not ashamed of telling people that God loves them and that their sins are paid for. Did you know we've come full circle today? Man, I have been persecuted. I get a lot of criticism for telling people that God loves them and that Jesus bore their sins and that God isn't mad at them anymore. And you know who it is that persecuted Jesus? The religious people. You know who it is that persecutes the gospel today? Is the religious people because we have been taught that God is angry at you and unless you do this and this and this, God won't move in your life. And we have a religious pharisaical system in place today, just like it was in the Bible days. But it's the good news. It's the gospel that is the power of God. If you're sick in your body, it says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The word salvation here doesn't only mean forgiveness of sins. But the word salvation is also talked about healing. It's translated that over in James chapter 5 verse 14. If any sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them anoint him with oil and pray over him. And the prayer of faith will save sozo the sick. That word there is talking about salvation for the sick. Healing is a part of salvation. So when it says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, did you know that the gospel is the power of God unto your healing? The gospel is the power of God under your financial prosperity. The gospel is the power of God under your deliverance and your emotional stability. If you aren't happy, if you aren't having joy and peace and victory, if you aren't healthy in your body, it's because you don't have a full revelation of the gospel. If you really knew the gospel, the nearly too good to be true news, and if you knew how much God loved you, your body would be healed. Not only supernaturally, but you know, just in the natural realm. I'm going to throw out andiology. I hadn't got time to share all this stuff with you and prove it, but you know, today Christians are promoting these health things and, you know, barley green and drinking this junk that it's not food, it's what food eats. Hey, man. <laughs> And they're, per, they're saying that you should go on this vegetarian diet, do all these kind of things. And it's not unusual on a lot of Christian outlets to have more information about health and diet and exercise than it is the preaching of the gospel. Now there's a balance here, but let me just say that I don't believe that what you eat and the way you exercise is like 90 or 99% of your health issues. The Bible doesn't teach that. And somebody says, oh, yes, it does. It talks about these dietary laws. The only time dietary laws are explained is in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And it says there that all of these dietary laws were shadows and types of New Testament realities that are now fulfilled. For a person to say, God told you not to eat pork because pork is bad for you, is incorrect. It's a doctrine of the devil. Second Timothy chapter four says that if anybody tells you to command you to abstain from eating meats, it's a doctrine of the devil. Those of you that are saying you can't eat pork, you can't do this, you can't eat red meat, it's a doctrine of the devil. Was that too subtle? Anybody miss that? (laughs) Am I saying that you shouldn't use wisdom? You know what? The conventional wisdom about what you're supposed to eat and stuff, it changes every 10 years. Now, I heard a report last week or sometime that the people had taught that you're supposed to eat low-fat things. Now they found out that a really low-fat diet is detrimental to you. It keeps your brain from working. I've suspected that all along, amen. (laughs) Your brain has to have a certain amount of fat to work. You know, they change the standards all the time. You know what the Bible says about health? The Bible says a merry heart does good like a medicine. The Bible says honor your father and mother so that you may live long upon the land. The Bible puts things on integrity, on honor. When you operate in joy, did you know it's it, a merry heart does good like a medicine? So... If you were to understand how forgiven you were and start rejoicing and praising God, did you know that once you understand the gospel, just in the natural realm, your body is going to improve, your immune system would work better if you weren't beat down with feeling unworthy and defiled and condemned all of the time? You would just have health in the natural realm, whether you received the supernatural healing from Jesus or not. Just in the natural realm, if you were to honor your parents and do things like this. I believe that, you know, food and exercise is a part of it. This is andiology. I can't prove this. But I believe it's like 20% of your health comes from the food you eat and exercise. Most people would believe it's 90% or more. I believe it's 20%. And I believe that your joy in the Lord is more important than these other things. We have, in a sense, Christians have become humanistic to where they aren't seeing that there's spiritual roots and things going on behind things. They're just looking for everything, a physical, organic reason for everything. You're depressed because you don't have certain chemicals. That's not true. The reason you don't have certain chemicals is because you're depressed. And so you can either deal with depression by doing what the Word says and just choosing and rejoicing in the Lord and encouraging yourself in the Lord, or you can take a pill and have somebody dope you up so that you can function. But that's not the right way to do it. Man, if you'd get your mind stayed on the Lord, the Bible says in Isaiah 26, 3, the Lord will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he trusts in him. Now, that's true for everybody except those that have chemical imbalances or those who have had traumatic experiences or those who were raised in dysfunctional families. No, that's not what the Bible says. There's no exceptions. If you would keep your mind stayed on the Lord, you'd be in perfect peace. If you aren't in perfect peace, your mind isn't stayed upon the Lord or it's stayed on religion. You're interpreting things through the wrong focus, the wrong lens of religion. If you understood the gospel, the gospel would produce health in your body. It'll produce joy and peace. It'll produce prosperity. Man, this is awesome. And so, anyway, you know what? I'm just nearly preaching verse by verse through this. I was wanting to just go through and highlight some things. I'm going to have to skip over. The rest of this first chapter of Romans, after he makes this bold statement, it's the goodness of God that's doing these things, people are going to immediately say, well, people need to know that they're a sinner. They need to know that God's angry at them. Well, verses 18 through 20, he basically says people know they're a sinner. It's an intuitive knowledge. God has revealed himself from heaven against all sin and all unrighteousness of man. You do not need to condemn people. They have an intuitive knowledge. Now, they will get into mind games and sometimes try and talk themselves out of it. But, you know, it's like when I was in Vietnam. I had a lot of people tell me they were atheists. And they argued with me and this one atheist, a Princeton Princeton educated atheist made me look like an absolute fool because he was just a better talker than I was. But you know what? When the bombs got to dropping and the bullets were flying, this atheist was crying out to the God he didn't believe in with all of his heart and saying, oh God save me. It's all just a mind game. You put a gun to their head and they're going to say, God help me. They know that there's a God. It's just a lie. So everybody in their heart knows that they need God. You don't have to try and convince people of their need for God. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. Some of you right now are thinking, well, I know somebody that doesn't know it. No, you don't. You you know some people that say they don't believe in God or that they have discounted Him and as long as they live in their little world and uh, stuff, but they know in their heart. So don't even argue with their head. Just go straight to their heart and talk to them like they know the truth. And you'll find out that people will respond. So in the rest of the first chapter, he's showing you don't have to convince people of their sin. They are condemned in their own heart. They know that there's right and wrong. They, everybody knows that there's only one God and they are not him. That's intuitive within every person. And then in chapter 2, he shows that the religious people are doubly guilty because they not only have the witness of their conscience, but they also know what the Word of God says. So the religious people are twice as accountable, twice as guilty before God. And so he sums it all up in chapter 3 by saying, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so both of us, whether you're a religious person or a non-religious person, whether you're just operating on an intuitive knowledge of God, or if you've been taught the word of God, you all know that you have need in your life and that you need help. And so he summarizes it up by saying, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24. And then in chapter 4, he goes back to the religious people and he uses two major examples in Romans chapter 4. And that's Abraham and David, two of the greatest patriarchs that lived in the Old Testament. And he shows you that these people weren't justified or in right standing with God because of their holiness. It was the grace of God. You know, the Lord was very candid in reporting on people's sins. He told about terrible things that people did. He told about David killing a person and marrying the man's wife, trying to cover up his adultery. He didn't whitewash it. And yet it's amazing how people just somehow or another look over this and think, Oh, David, what a great holy man. The guy committed adultery and murdered, trying to cover up his adultery. And yet he was the man after God's own heart. How in the world could you say that God only uses people who are worthy of being used? People say this all the time that, oh, you must be holy for God to do things like that. No, God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet, and I'm not going to be the first one. Neither will you. God's never had anybody who deserved to be used. He was very candid with this. This is what he's saying here in the fourth chapter. In verse uh, 2, it says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath off to glory, but not before God. In other words, if Abraham would have earned all of these things from God because of his greatness, well, he might have been able to boast in front of a person, but not before God. In verse 3 it says, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's a quotation from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 where God just said, Abraham count the stars that are in the sky or number the grains of sand on the seashore. If you can number them or count them, so shall your seed be. And Abraham just believed God and his faith was counted to him for righteousness, not his holiness. You know, I hadn't got time to go into detail, but if you were to turn over to Leviticus chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18, it, it was a, an abomination in the sight of God to marry a half-sister, to marry a cousin or a half-sister, or a stepsister or something like that. Abraham married a stepsister. And according to Leviticus 18, it was an abomination. And if the law would have been in effect, he would have had to have been stoned to death. It was an abomination in the sight of God. Now when do you think God decided that marrying a stepsister is wrong? He doesn't change. It was always wrong. But until the law was given, God was dealing with people in mercy and he wasn't imputing their sins unto them. Abraham was living in a sexual abomination to God and yet he's the only person in the Old Testament called the friend of God. It wasn't because of his goodness and his greatness. It was because this man trusted the promise of God and believed and that's the reason that God used him. He wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. Did you know that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a much greater man. He was the priest of the Most High God. And it even says this over in Hebrews chapter 7, that the less is blessed of the greater. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Therefore, Melchizedek was greater, and yet Melchizedek wasn't the one who started a nation. It was Abraham. Abraham wasn't chosen because he was the best person on the face of the earth. He just trusted God and believed the promise of God. And God used him because of faith. That's what these verses are saying. And so in verse 4 it says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. But to him that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Notice it says in this verse 5 that God justifies the ungodly. God only justifies... Ungodly. That's because he hadn't got anybody else to justify. It. We are all ungodly. The word ungodly means not like God. You might be better than I am. You may have lived a better life than I have. But who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Amen. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all ungodly. There is not a person in here that has ever acted consistently perfectly like God. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so God only justifies ungodly people. If you are unwilling to admit that you're ungodly, you can't be justified. And not only the initial forgiveness of sins, but you could, I believe, also take this same principle and apply it to our relationship with God after you're born again. The only people that God really can relate to and fellowship with are people who are willing to admit that it is not our goodness and our worth and our value and we come on the basis of grace and put faith in a Savior. If you are trusting your own holiness, that's the very thing that is keeping you from receiving from God is the fact that you are saying, God give it to me. I deserve it. I've done this and this and this. Those are the only kind Of people that God can't answer your prayer because it's not based on a Savior. You're your own Savior. You're basing God's answer in your life upon your own goodness. That's ungodly. Amen. And so in verse 6 it says, Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without work, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. This is a quotation from Psalms chapter 32. Verse 8, it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. It's saying here, even David was talking about the day of grace when our sins were paid for. David's sins weren't paid for. David had relationship with God by looking forward to the fact that there was coming a payment for his sins, but that payment hadn't been made. And did you know that the animal sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament, they never did really forgive anybody's sins. It says this over in Hebrews chapter 9. It was impossible that the blood of bulls and of goats could take away sins. They were only a picture, a shadow, and it was really given for our benefit more than it was for God's. It was a constant reminder to us that without the shedding of blood, without somebody giving their life, we could not have a relationship with God. So those sacrifices were enforced under the Old Testament. But did you know when David sinned against God? In Psalms chapter 51 where he wrote his prayer of repentance... He says, God, I would give sacrifice and offering if you really desired it. But says, that's not what you desire. Your sacrifices are a broken and a contrite spirit. David never did offer the blood sacrifices for his sins that he had committed with Bathsheba and Uriah because he had a revelation that those were only pictures and shadows and what God really wanted was true repentance from the heart. He didn't offer sacrifices. There's no scriptural account of it. So he was looking forward to his sins being forgiven. And that's the reason that when he sinned, he felt separated from God. And so he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence and renew a right spirit within me. Did you know people in the, new, in the body of Christ today are still singing those songs from Isaiah? I mean, from Psalms chapter 51 about... Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's a slap in the face of Jesus when you sing something like that. Because he promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. David didn't have that promise. And so it was appropriate for David to say, oh God, don't leave me. Don't take your spirit away because he didn't have a promise. We've got a promise. Our sins have been forgiven. We've got a new heart inside of us. And so don't ever ask God to give you a new heart after you've already got a new heart. That's unbelief. There's a difference between the way people approach God in the Old Testament because the price hadn't been paid. They were praying and looking forward to it. We're looking back to it. And for you to sit there and say, Oh God, please forgive me of my sins after you've already been born again is not correct. Thank you for that thunderous silence. David, see, look forward and he says, Man, there's coming a day. Blessed is the man who's... um, or whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. covered. And look at this in verse 8. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Not only did not, does not, but future tense, will not. David saw that there was coming such a payment for sin that all sin would be wiped out. Past, present, and even future tense sin would be dealt with. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That is a concept that, again, the body of Christ as a whole doesn't have. Tremendous amount of persecution, rejection. I can't believe you're saying a person's sins are forgiven before they're committed. That's exactly what David saw. That's what he was talking about. That's what this scripture is talking about. Tonight, if I continue in the same way I'm thinking, I'm going to teach on that eternal redemption. How that all sin, past, present, and even future tense sin have been forgiven and dealt with. Boy, you need to get this understanding. There is nothing that can come between you and God. You can't blow it. You can't send it away. God will never leave you nor forsake you. Some people, man, I'd never say that. If you give people that kind of an assurance... They'll just go live in sin. What's going to be the motivation for them to live holy? Because the church has basically been using fear of rejection and fear of punishment to keep people on the straight and narrow. The church as a whole believes that fear is a greater motivation than love. But you know what? Love is an infinitely stronger motivation. As a matter of fact, it says over in 1 John chapter 4 verse 18, that whoever fears has not had God's love perfected on the inside of them because perfect love casts out fear. Fear has torment and God's kind of love casts out fear. If you are still serving God because you're afraid that if you don't do it, He won't answer your prayer. If you don't do it, He's going to send you to hell. You're going to lose your salvation and all of these other things, then you haven't been made perfect in love. You don't fully understand the gospel. And that's the very reason you don't have power for healing and for deliverance and for joy and for peace is because the gospel, the good news, the nearly too good to be true news of God's love is what releases that and very few people know the true gospel. David knew it and he said, man, blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins or transgressions are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Isn't that great? Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision or the Jews or the religious people only or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham. And he talks about Abraham got this before he was circumcised, before he performed all of the religious duties. Therefore, it wasn't his religious duties that caused God to accept him. It was faith that was accepted by God. And he uses this and he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham was called the father of many nations before he even had a son. And it was faith. It was all of these things. And real quickly, I'm just going to go through a few more verses here. But you come down to chapter 5 and after he's talked about all of these things, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. You remember last night, They were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill towards man. How do you access? How do you get this peace? It's through understanding the gospel. It's through understanding that God placed your sin upon Jesus. It's not you. You didn't make peace by the fact that you now are going to church and that you've promised you won't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do. God, I promise you I'll give in the offerings. I'll do this and this. And that's why you have peace with God. No, Jesus made peace. Jesus bore all your sin and all you can do is receive it. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to make yourself more acceptable to God than what Jesus has made you. That's the only way you can have peace with God is to be justified by faith. If you're trying to be justified through your own effort, through your own goodness, that's the reason you have zero peace. That's the reason you have zero confidence and stability and security is because it's all on your shoulders. If I thought that you had to earn the favor of God, then the moment you get born again, I'd just kill you. (laughs) Because that's the only way you'd ever be able to maintain it in your effort because you are going to blow it again. Oh, I know I blow it, but then I run and I get forgiveness. Well, if I thought that you had to repent and pray through and get born again again and forgiven of your sins every time you sin, I'd still kill you because you know what? That's putting all of the burden of salvation on your back and you're... Your ability to confess and even recognize every sin. Many of us do a lot of things wrong that we don't even recognize it's sin, but other people do. God certainly does. And if it was up to you to repent of every sin and get it under the blood, man, you can't live that way. You just better hope somebody kills you as soon as you get born again because that's the only way you'd ever be able to retain it. It says in verse 2, by whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It says you access, the word access here is the exact same word that we get admission from. You have admission. You know, if we had charged for you to come to this seminar today, there would have been somebody out there taking your money and without a ticket or paying an admission price, you couldn't have gotten in here. You have access or admission to the grace of God through faith. Faith is what gains you access, admission to the grace of God. Not your goodness, not your works, not your performance. God loves you because He is love, not because you are lovely. Amen? Boy, that's good news. Wish to had time to go all the way through the fifth chapter. But look, I want to end with this this morning in... Romans chapter 6. Let me just make this point. In Romans chapter 6 it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul here had been preaching on grace and talking about that God loves us independent of our performance. It has nothing to do with your goodness and worth whether you've done everything right or not. And this immediately raises the question, Are you saying that we should continue in sin? so that grace may abound? What's his answer in verse 2? God forbid. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Apostle Paul was saying. But here's a point I want to bring out. If what you are listening to, and they're calling it the gospel, has never made you think, can I just live in sin because all of my sins been forgiven? If you don't have that question come up, then you haven't heard the same gospel that the Apostle Paul preached. The Apostle Paul said this four times, four times, twice right here in the sixth chapter. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is anybody misunderstanding the message that you're listening to? And they're saying, are you just saying that we can live in sin? No, that's not what I'm saying, but that is a logical question. And if that question doesn't come up, then you aren't hearing the same gospel that the early New Testament church heard. And that's the reason that we aren't getting the same results that the early New Testament church had. That's the reason that we have people that if they were arrested for being a Christian, there wouldn't be enough evidence to convict them. (laughs) There isn't any power. There isn't any victory in their life. Nobody could even tell that they're a Christian. There are some of you that go to job and people that you work around. They don't know that you're a Christian. There's nothing different about you. You know why? Because you haven't fully understood the gospel. If you were to understand the gospel, if you understood how much God loved you, there are some of you that have things in your life that you've done that you're still ashamed of and you won't admit it to anybody. You even are trying to hide it from God. The truth is God knows all about it. The Lord has already forgiven it. It's already been dealt with. God bore it. He suffered your shame for you. He loves you in spite of what you've done. Man, I wish I could talk to every one of you personally right now and just operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and read your mail. And you know what, God, regardless of how sorry you've been in any area, God loves you. And if you could really understand that and receive it, I guarantee you... There would be such a reciprocal love on your part. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, we love him because he first loved us. If you understood how much God loves you, there isn't a single person in here that wouldn't be a stark, raving, mad fanatic. Some of you think, well, that's not my personality or whatever. You know, I'm pretty laid back. I'm pretty quiet. There's a lot of people that don't think I'm anointed because I don't scream and spit and yell and do things like this. But I can guarantee you, I'm a fanatic. I love God with all of my heart. I'd follow the Lord anywhere I'd do anything because I have a revelation of God's love for me. There is nobody, I don't care what your personality type is like or what your situation is, if you understood the gospel, it would release the power of God in your life more than you could have ever dreamed. Instead of being coerced into doing something out of a sense of debt, and fearful that God's going to be displeased with you or angry if you don't do it, you would do it out of love. And you would do it much better and much stronger and much more out of love than you'll ever do it out of fear. If we would change the motivation that we're trying to use on people to let them know how much God loves them, I guarantee you people would serve God infinitely more out of love than they ever would out of fear. But it's easier to motivate people out of fear. Because people, everybody, even lost people understand fear, rejection, punishment. And so we can get up there and say you either tithe or God's going to judge you. You're cursed with the curse. Unbelievers understand that. Unbelievers can relate to that. But you get up and tell people that you're free. God loves you. Give as you purpose in your own heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity because God loves a cheerful giver. And people who aren't in love with God will give less. Because they don't have to give now. But the people who love God with all of their heart will give more when you motivate them by love. And you know what? From our standpoint, well, man, the kingdom of God would suffer or this or that. Well... The physical things that we monitor and keep statistics on may not look as good, but you know what? God's not impressed with those things anyway. It's only the people that give from their heart with the right motivation that God is accepting and and is pleased with their giving in the first place. I guarantee there's a lot of people today that are going through the motions and giving and doing works and going to church and you're knocking on doors and you're reading the Bible and you're doing all of the right things but you're doing it with the wrong motive trying to make yourself acceptable to God trying to earn God's favor and God's not pleased with any of that. All of that stuff when we stand before God it's going to be torched and it's going to prove to be wood, hay and stubble. It'll be gone. It's not going to endure the fire it's to, we're all of these good works, all of the religious stuff that many people are doing, man, some of these big churches that have thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming and yet they aren't committed to God. There's no peace. There's no joy. There's no victory in their life. They're just going through the motions. That's not going to be pleasing to God. Man, there's a lot of people that are just as straight as a gun barrel and twice as empty. They don't have any joy. They don't have any peace in their life because they haven't been motivated by the gospel. They're being motivated out of fear and condemnation. That is not the gospel. If somebody doesn't say, well, man, can I just live in sin because God has forgiven all of my sins? Then they hadn't heard the gospel that Paul preached. No, that's not what Paul was saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that, you know what, God loves you so much that all of your sins are forgiven. And God's judgment is is not coming on your sin. Satan will take advantage of your sin, so it's still stupid to go live in sin. You ought to live as holy as you possibly can, but not in order to receive God's blessing, but because you have received it, you're so thankful you want to live in a way that glorifies God. You don't want to yield yourself to your enemy that's come to steal, kill, and destroy. You know, I'm glad God raised me up to preach the gospel. Because I have lived a holier life than most of you have ever thought about. And you can't look at me and say, well, he's preaching this because this allows him to go do all of these sins. Man, I have lived a super strict life according to, you know, religious standards. I am not preaching this so that I can go out and live in sin. I don't have mistresses. I've never committed adultery. I don't do stuff like that. I am living a relatively holy life according to man's religious standards. So I am not preaching this to indulge my flesh. If I was out living in sin, people would immediately think, no wonder he preaches this. See, it it frees him to live in sin. But that's not what the Bible says. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men. Verse 12 teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. If you truly understand the grace of God, you'll live holier accidentally than you ever lived on purpose before. You will wind up glorifying God and serving God, but you'll do it out of a pure heart. God will accept it and it'll be pleasing to Him. He'll inhabit your the uh, good works that you do because they aren't done trying to earn anything. They're done just out of love and it'll be pleasing to God. You'll be satisfied. It will change your whole life. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is the gospel. And we need to be proclaiming the gospel. You need to be sharing this with your friends. And I tell you, it would release people. It would set people free today if we were doing that. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. You know, if there's anybody here today who's not born again...